<laughs> you open your Bibles this morning to Matthew 22. Matthew 22. We're starting a new series today uh, entitled, wait for it, Love Your Neighbor. Love Your Neighbor. Um, you know, the fall for us as a church tends to be a season when we're, we're really active in our community. We have some things coming up. Uh, we have a pumpkin festival in just a few weeks that you'll be hearing more about. And last year we volunteered. We had about 24, 25 of you come out and volunteer for that event. And uh, the organizers of that were so appreciative of that. In fact, um, uh, Valerie, who runs that event, her, her grandson is on Gavin's football team, and so we see them uh, every week, and, uh, and she's, we saw her at a football game a, a couple of weeks ago, and she said, is your church wanting to, to volunteer again because it, it made such a difference for us last year? And I said, absolutely, we want to be a part of that. We have the Halloween carnival that the city does where we partner with them and, and provide volunteers for some of those booths. And so that's coming up. And so it just tends to be a season where we're doing uh, intentionally just a lot of connection, connecting with our community. Um, and so I wanted us to, and felt like the Lord was really saying, we need to, we need to really turn our attention to the world around us, to our community and beyond, and even praying for Stacy this morning is, is such a great example of that, because sometimes there's, there's people in our periphery that we don't, we don't necessarily see. We see them, but we don't see them. You know what I mean? Other people, like Stacy even mentioned, you go to the grocery store, you go to the coffee shop, and there's people that you see, but you can kind of see someone and see right past them. And, and here's what I believe about the heart of God, is that He sees people. He doesn't see past them, He sees them. He sees their situation, He sees where they are and what they're walking through. And so it's important for us to reframe, because sometimes it's easy for us to just see what's going on in our own lives. Like I was talking about earlier, the wind and the waves, right? And it's all about how the wind and the waves affect me. How is this affecting me? And that's important. That's important. But, but we forget that there's other people in a similar situation, sometimes even in the same boat. And God goes, I want you to care about those people just as much as you care about yourself. You know, it's... No shock or surprise to any of us that as we look at our nation over the last weeks, months, and even years, that what we've seen and what we're hearing is more division, disunity, anger, hatred, intolerance, and all of these things in greater degree. You don't have to go very far. You watch the news for a few minutes, and every now and again, we get a little glimmer of hope, something like a hurricane comes blowing through, and all of a sudden, we see this rise of humanity and people helping each other out. And quite honestly, we celebrate these stories because they're the exception and not the rule. And while it's great to celebrate that people are helping each other, it should just be the norm for us. But unfortunately, it's not. It's not. And so what we hear about are the hurtful things and the broken things in the world around us. Matthew chapter 22, we find Jesus having an encounter that helps kind of set our focus this morning. I want to share, we're going to be Matthew chapter 22, and then we'll also be taking 
and look in Luke chapter 10. And so if you want to open your Bibles there, Matthew chapter 22, verse 34 says this, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees with his reply, they met together to question him again. One of them, an expert in religious law, tried to trap him with this question. Let me stop there for a second. Uh, when I read that, I, all I could see was the scene from Star Wars, right? When the fish guy, General Akbar, I think his name is, goes and he yells, it's a trap, right? Any Star Wars people, come on. A few of you, right? It's a trap. And I imagine in this moment, like the disciples are kind of waving Jesus off like, this is a trap. This is not good, right? This is not a good situation. All right. (laughs) Teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? And Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. What I love is that the trap didn't phase Jesus. He wasn't like, oh no, what am I going to (laughs) do? I'm a, little, I'm a little freaked out right now. You guys have backed me into a corner. In fact, that never happened with Jesus. He always had an answer. I especially love it when he answered questions with a question, yeah, yeah. right? And then the person's like, whoa, I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> you must, you must, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and mind. And if you've been in church for any amount of time, you've probably heard that before, And even those outside of church have heard that before. The greatest commandment, love the Lord your God. You must. When Jesus says you must do something, we can infer from that that it's not optional. Would you agree? You must love God. You must love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. With every bit of who you are, your entire being. That nothing would be left out. That you would love God with, with, at the, with, with, with everything you are. That he would be at the center part, the central figure. You're all in all that, that you must love God. But then he says this. This law, this rule, this commandment is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. I think sometimes we leave out the equally. Because I'm okay with loving God. It's loving people that I have a hard time with. But if, if Jesus says that this commandment is equally important as love God, I believe we need to give it a little bit more attention in our lives. That we can't just gloss over it and pretend that it's not there. You know that in the, in the Old Testament, in the Torah, there were 613 laws or commandments. 613. That's a lot, right? If you were told there are 613 rules that you need to obey to be saved, to inherit eternal life, you go, whoa, that's burdensome. But Jesus makes this statement These two, love God and love your neighbor as yourself, are the basis for all of them. And in another place in Scripture, he says this, if 
these two laws really hinge, they become the hinge point for everything else. If we get those two, if you love God and love your neighbor as yourself, what he's saying is, is that the other 611 laws are no longer needed. If we will do these two, the rest of the law becomes irrelevant because we're just going to do those things anyway. Does that make sense? That's huge for us to grasp. And Jesus says this in the midst of that setting. So, so the truth is, before we can begin to talk about loving our neighbor, we have to understand that we must love God. That has to be settled, and that's a whole other message, and so we don't have time to go there today. I just, I just want to say this emphatically, you must love God. And by the way, the only way, the reason you can love him is because he first loved you, because he showed you what love is. Your heart, your soul, and your mind. But there's something else that Jesus says here, and I think this is really a key for us in understanding why loving your neighbor is so hard. He says, love your neighbor as you love yourself. And I want to suggest to you this morning that one of the reasons, one of the greatest challenges we have in loving people is this. We actually struggle with loving ourselves. We have a hard time believing that we're lovable. That God loves us, let alone loving myself. Now what Jesus is saying here is love your neighbor as you love yourself. Because there's this, this, this base understanding that I'm going to take care of me. That, that I'm going to take care of my needs. That I'm going to tend to myself. That I'm going to make sure that I'm fed, that I'm clothed, that uh, I'm going to preserve my life. But as we study and look at psychology in our modern context, we understand this, that, that there is a self-loathing that has crept into who we are, that we chronologically will look at our lives and kind of assess our lives and say, you know, there's so much about my life that I don't love, that I don't like, that I'm kind of disgusted with me. How can I be expected to even love other people? I don't even love myself. So it's important for us to, to deal with that. Can I just declare over you today, you are loved by the Most High God. That you are worthy and deserving of His love. And because of that, you are free to love yourself. To love who you are in Christ. I think, I don't know about you, but I can be really, really really hard on me. I set expectations for myself that I believe God would go, whoa, take it easy. Back off a little bit. God would say, I've extended my grace to you. My grace is sufficient. It's when we do that, when we start walking in that kind of health and that kind of healing and that kind of security that we are absolutely freed to love people the way God has intended us to love. Luke chapter 10, verse 25 through 37. Again, Jesus is being questioned. It says this, One day an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question, Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? So unlike the, other, the, other, uh, the, the Pharisee who said, What's the most important? This time it's personal. 
What should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? You're the expert, right? And here's the question. Turns it back on the guy. And the man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. He knew the answer, right? Because he was an expert in the law. He was an expert in the law. He had memorized, he knew the 613 laws, and he knew the most important ones. So he answers correctly, right, Jesus told him, do this and you will live. And here, here's something so critical that this man asks. The man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor. I want to stop here for a second. We're going to come back to the rest of this passage. This word justifier is really important for us. See, because what it does is really sheds a light on the condition of his heart. What he's really asking in here is, who is it that I don't have to love and still inherit eternal life? Who is it that doesn't qualify? Where's the line? Right? Because surely there's got to be some person who is not deserving of my love. Who is it that I don't have to love? Wanting to justify himself, what that, what that basically means is he wanted to feel better about himself. He wanted to let, know what he could get away with and still be in. Years ago in our junior high youth group, I preached a message in, in, entitled, The Line. The Line. And, and for decades and centuries, not just teenagers, but all of us have lived our lives as Christians this way. How close can I get to the line before I step over and it becomes sin? How close can I get, right? And the question, it's the wrong question. The only reason I want to know where the line is, is so that I know that I, the direction I need to be running in the opposite way. Because I want to get away from the line and closer to Jesus. But this kind of Christian living that says, Lord, I want to justify myself, so how much is okay? Where is the point where I cross the line? And, and I believe that at that point you've already crossed the line by asking the question. This man wants to justify himself, wants to feel better about himself, wants to know what he can get away with. Who is it that gets excluded? Because there's got to be someone Another way to put it is this, what's the least amount I need to do? This is Jesus engaging with this man who would go on to give his life on a cross. This is the son of God who was in heaven, which is a pretty awesome place, who stepped out of his deity in heaven, and while he was fully God and remained fully God, he also became fully human and stepped into a time and a place that was not easy or convenient. It was just dirty, and there was hard work, and life expectancy wasn't real good. Knowing that he would ultimately sacrifice his life and give himself on the cross. See, Jesus wasn't asking, what's the least amount I can do? What he was saying is, I'm going to do everything I need to do and more. And our hearts should reflect that. It goes on in verse 30. Jesus replied with a story. 
I love stories. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed by. A temple assistant or Levite walked over and looked at him lying there. So this guy actually walks over, takes a closer look, and then he keeps going on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, which of the three would you say was the neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? Jesus asked. The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. And I love what Jesus says. Yes, and now go and do the same. Go do the same. This story is powerful. And we're probably, most of us, familiar with the the story of the Good Samaritan. Um, And it's used both inside of the church and even outside of the church. It's part of our vernacular. Oh, you're just, you're a good Samaritan. Someone came along, right? And we have organizations like Samaritan's Purse uh, who do a lot of relief work. um, And and they're amazing because we recognize that the Samaritan in this story did something pretty phenomenal. I want to paint a bit of a picture of context, though, for us. What we need to understand, because I think we read the Bible sometimes, and we have this idyllic view of what it was like then. Like, somehow, we've got the, we've, we've got the corner on the market when it comes to difficulty and, and strife and, 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 and things like, like, like racism and intolerance. Like, today is something unique, and the reality is it's not. See, Israel at this time was an occupied nation. The Romans had occupied uh, the nation of Israel. They had come in by force and had taken over. And so Rome, they were part of the Roman Empire. And, and what Rome did, they were, they were actually pretty brilliant in the way that they ruled the world, is that they would come in and they would establish themselves and the, the Roman legion and the army would be there. And then they would basically let people keep going with their lives practicing their religion, using their form of government, right? Going on through your day. Now, of course, you paid taxes to Caesar because that was a part of being protected by the Roman government, by, the, 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 by Caesar, right? And so you paid your taxes and there was your fair share. But, but make no doubt about it, it was brutal. That Rome ruled with a heavy heavy, heavy hand. In fact, when we think about Golgotha, where Jesus was crucified, that was not the only time a crucifixion had taken place. It was used daily. And the Romans would publicly execute people because it would instill a level of fear in the populace that kept them in line and kept them in check. And so while you're kind of going through your day and, and you're still functioning as normal as, as normal could be, always in the back of your mind is you're, rem, you're rem, reminded that 
while there's people hanging up on a cross over there because they crossed the line, because they did something wrong, walking through the streets of Jerusalem and coming across Roman patrol soldiers who were professionals and would suppress any kind of uprising in, in a moment. So this is the tension that they lived in. They were an occupied people. And not only that, Jerusalem was, and, and Israel was a diversity of races, cultures, and religions. Because what happened when the Romans would come in and, and take over, it kind of opened the gates, opened the borders to other people to come. For other people to, to, to bring their uh, culture and their religion and their personality into the mix. And so Israel was, was this mixed nation Diversity of races, cultures, and religion, religions. And, and not only that, there were these tensions that existed already within the Jewish people. See, the Samaritans traced their heritage, as we hear when Jesus has the encounter with the woman at the well. They, they all looked back to Abraham as their father, but the Samaritans were part of the northern kingdom, and they had intermarried with the Assyrians, and, and so there was this animosity between the real Jews and the Samaritans, and it ran deep. They hated each other. That's why Jesus says, a despised Samaritan. They didn't play nice. And then on top of that, even within the Jewish culture, you have the Sadducees and the Pharisees and these different sects where they disagreed with each other. And so it was a very divided time in the history of Israel. It's in the midst of this that Jesus tells this story, and when you understand that context, you understand that Jesus kind of poked the eyes of the Jewish people, right? It was kind of an insult to them, what he shared. It says a Jewish man, and they would have all said, yes, a Jewish man, right? Ah, good Jew, right? Saying to Jesus, wait, wait to tell the story right. Well, he's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, which is about 17 miles, and it's a mountainous road that drops about 3,000 feet from Jerusalem down to Jericho. He's going down this mountainous road, and along the way, there's, this, there's a lot of places to hide, and it was notorious for being a place where you would get robbed. And there was no, because, it, because it afforded the opportunity. What it doesn't say and what's not told in the story is that most of the robberies historically in that place were perpetrated by Samaritans, not by Jews. So, so Jesus is telling this story, and when he says there were bandits, everyone in that setting, because he was in a teaching setting, would have, and they would have been Jews, would have assumed, well, they were Samaritans probably, that because we have a Jewish man and we have bandits, they had to be Samaritans, they're going to jump out and rob this guy. And man, they did a number on him. They didn't just take his wallet, they stripped him, they beat him, and they left him for dead. See, it wouldn't have bothered a Samaritan bandit to kill a Jewish person. Like, hey, I'm doing you a favor taking what you have, and I'm going to leave you for dead. And the people, again, in the room or in that context, in that setting, would have thought, yeah, that's, that sounds about right. That's what those, those despised people do. That's how they act. And see, you can see in the story even how they would have been forming an opinion, right? And they're hearing the story and going, oh, I know how this one goes, right? Because I have a friend that was attacked on that road. I know someone who was attacked on that road. Yeah, I know. I, yeah, Jesus, I'm tracking with you. I hear what you're saying. 
Then Jesus says this, a priest coming from Jerusalem down to, to, uh, down to Jericho um, is, uh, is walking down the mountain here. And see, what happened is the priests and the Levites all would serve for a term in the temple. It was a rotation. They had homes and they had fields that they tended to. But the priests and the Levites would go for a certain amount of time and would go serve in the temple. The priests, of course, would uh, make the sacrifices and, 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 and do all the work, that work in the temple. The Levites were in kind of in a supporting role. They took care of uh, consecrating the temple and, and making sure that all of the, the instruments and everything was set up. Kind of like we have our Levite team here at church. That's our setup and teardown team. We call them Levites. Why? Because it, we, we come in and we transform this school into a place of worship. And so we derive even that name from this. So this priest is coming home after serving his time. Put it this way. He's on his way home from church. Okay? He's on his way home from church. And Jesus says, the priest doesn't even take a look at the guy. Now remember, it's a Jewish man. It's a Jewish priest and a Jewish man. And it says that, Jesus says that the man just crossed on the other side. And then a Levite, also serving in the temple, someone who would have known the greatest commandment, would have known better, also coming from church, coming from serving a leader in the church. He, he comes over and takes a look and says, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep going and goes back over to the other side and says, I don't want anything to do with this. Now, there would have been a little confusion in the group at this point as Jesus is telling the story. Like, where are you going with this? And then Jesus says, a despised Samaritan comes. Wait, what? Who? Yeah, a despised Samaritan, and he comes, and he sees the man, a Jewish man. A Samaritan sees a Jewish man and has compassion, and he goes over, and he starts tending to him, and he takes out olive oil, and he starts binding up the wounds. And it says that he put the man... The Samaritan man put this man who was beat up, put him on his donkey, and takes him into the next town, and he goes to an inn, and he gives the innkeeper two pieces of, of silver, and he gets a room for the night, and he spends the night, he interrupts his journey, and he spends the night, and he tends to this man's needs. And, and then, you know, he has to keep going, he's got business he needs to take care of, but he says to the, the innkeeper, listen take care of him, and if there's any additional cost, if there's any other expense, I'll come back and I'll, I'll pay that. When we understand that Jesus telling this story, it would, have, it would have been insulting to the hearers of this story to hear what they were hearing, but, but the fact stood when Jesus got to the end of the story and said, who was the neighbor? They didn't have an option. They have a choice to say, well, well the priest or the Levite. As much as they would have wanted to say that, they had to say, the man who showed him mercy, the one who really shouldn't have, it was him. It was him. I've got two points, and then we'll close. First is this, loving your neighbor will cost you. Loving your neighbor will cost you. It'll cost you time. See, the Samaritan stopped his journey to help. He was on his way somewhere. It will cost you time to love your neighbor. Relationship is key here. 
We can't love people if we don't know people. We can't love people if we don't know people. Because how are they going to know you love them if you don't know them and don't have a relationship? Does that make sense? It'll cost you time. And remember, I'm not talking about the people in your life are the easy ones to love. Jesus said, hey, it's easy to love the people who love you, right? Even the pagans do that. What reward is there in that? In fact, Jesus says, love your enemy. Now, that's work, and that will take time. But loving your neighbor will cost you. It'll cost you time. It'll cost you energy. He had to stop on the side of the road and tend to this man's needs. And then he loads the man onto his donkey, which means the Samaritan man had to walk. He gave up his ride. He said, I'll walk, and I'll put this man on my donkey. It'll cost you energy, and it'll cost you resource. Maybe money, but resource comes in forms outside of money as well. Paid for his stay in the inn, purchased supplies to care for him. And even committed to say, you know what, when I come back this way, if the cost is greater, I'll take care of that cost. It's speculated that the two silver coins he left him would have probably uh, secured about two weeks of lodging for this man who was beat up, right? Because there was no hospital, by the way. He didn't take him to the ER because there was no ER, He took him to an inn and got him a comfortable place to stay, a safe place to stay so he could heal. Committed to come back out of his way. It would have been easy for him just to walk away, but he didn't. Why? Because there was a compassion in his heart to say, I'm going to love this person that I don't even know. I'm going to extend myself. I'm going to spend out of my own resource. I'm going to give him my own energy and give of my Time In Acts chapter 2, verse 45, in the early church, one of the things that stands out to me in Acts chapter 2 is this. In verse 45, it says, they sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. I'm always struck by this because I think about the, the difficult place that tithing and offering has in the modern church. This idea that Wow, giving 10%, Pastor Barry, that's a lot. And, and, and hear me, if you've, if you've not ever walked in, in, in a place where you're tithing, to, to come to church for the first time and hear someone say, by the way, you've got to give 10%, <laughs> what, right? That's a, that's a big thing to, to kind of swallow. And it's as we mature in Christ that we recognize, okay, Lord, as I grow in this and I develop that muscle, Then as I get to a place where I'm tithing, it took me years. Even as a pastor, I struggled tithing. But when I got to that place where I'm like, Lord, I'm going to do this as a place of worship to you. He said, okay, um, I'm going to honor that. And God does. He honors that that giving. But we get hung up on that. and, And I hear people say, well, we just need to be more like the New Testament church. And I'd be like, great, go sell your house, right? Go sell your house and your car and then bring all of the proceeds. I'm good with the tithe, (laughs) right? Because what happens when the body of Christ, when we come together and we start loving God and loving people, we'd stop asking, what is it that, what's the least I have to do? And we move to a place that's like, what can I do? Even more than what I'm doing right now to love people. 
So when people talk about the New Testament church, that was the characteristic, again, in the same cultural context. I'm going I'm to give everything because Jesus has given me everything. Galatians 5, 13 through 15. You've been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters, but don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. For the whole law can be summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you're always biting and devouring one another, watch out, beware of destroying one another. We have it in our ability to build each other up or tear each other down. We've talked about that over the last few months. But part of that is I have this freedom. I have the freedom to give and not give. The thing I have to check is, is this selfish? Is this just for me? Is this to satisfy my flesh? Or am I walking in obedience to the Lord and saying, Lord, I'm going to love people and serve people the way that you're calling me to love and serve my neighbor. So loving your neighbor will cost you. We need to be ready to pay the price, to step out. But here's the other thing, and I'll close with this. It's my job to love you, and it's God's job to fix you. It's my job to love you, and it's God's job to fix you. The Samaritan didn't say to the Jewish man, you know, if you were just a Samaritan, you wouldn't have got robbed because Samaritans don't rob, rob Samaritans. I don't think they were that picky, actually. But we don't see that. You know, if you hadn't been walking this way, if you'd taken the other way, right, if you just made better life choices, you wouldn't be in the situation you're in, Ooh, right? If you had just read your Bible a little bit more, if you just prayed a little bit more, if you were just more serious about your relationship with God, if you weren't such a jerk, if you hadn't just looked at him with that look, you know that look, you had it coming because you know what, you, mm-hmm. It's my job to love people, not to fix them. God does the fixing all he says to me is, love your neighbor as yourself. I cut myself a lot of slack, right? I can be really hard on myself, but most of the time, I cut my... In fact, usually what happens is I, I walk through a situation, and then I start kind of being really tough on myself, and then I start talking... To, anyone talk to themselves? Okay. Um, right? And I convince myself that it's actually not that bad, and I'm Okay. And I talk myself actually out of making any significant change in my life. That's a whole nother sermon. <laughs> what we tend to do is this, with people that are both near and far from us, we want to try and fix people so we can love them. We do this. We all do it. I will be able to love you better if you do this, this, and this, and this. If your life wasn't so much, so, such a mess, it'd be so much easier to love you. If you weren't walking in sin, it'd be so much easier to love you. And, and the gospel is exactly the opposite. That God loved us while we were yet sinners. 
that he died for us before we deserved anything, and we still don't deserve anything, yet that's what he did for us. See, it's God's job to fix people. It's just simply our job to love people, to love people with the love of God. We can't say that. We can't say, I would love you more if. Because what I'm asking is the same thing then that, the, that the expert in law said. What's, what's the line? What's the least I have to do? And, and is there something that you can do to me? Is there a point? I'll pick on Tom because he's sitting right here and, I'm, uh, and he's got a great smile on his face right now. Is there a point, God, where Tom offends me that I can just go, you know what, I'm done with him. He's your problem, not mine. Right? Or we do this. Tom, I, I, I have to love you because the Bible says so, but I really don't like you. <laughs> oh, great, thanks. Appreciate that. No. That there's never a point where God says, you get to stop loving Tom. Ever. For any reason. Well, Lord, but you don't know what he said to me. You don't know what she said to me, how they treated me. Nope. God says, love your neighbor, because it's equally as important as loving God. And God's saying, if you want to love me, you need to love your neighbor and vice versa. They're synonymous. Why well, I love God, but I really don't like that guy. God's like, then you really don't love me. Ugh. Right? But this is what God says to us. Here's the problem. We're all broken in our sin. You're broken. You are broken. And when we start looking at people going, you know, I love you when you're better, God looks at us and goes, wait, what? Come again? Because you're not perfect. We don't have a leg to stand on, as it were. Jesus says it this way in Matthew 7, why worry about the speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see, the, see past the log in your own eye? own eye? Hypocrite. First get rid of the log in your own eye, then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. Jesus knew what was going on in our hearts. He knew what was happening in the experts, uh, the, 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 the heart of the expert in the law, wanting to say, listen, what's the least I have to do? And by the way, in the midst of doing the least I have to do, can I call other people out? God's like, no, deal with you. Because when you love God, and you learn to love yourself, you can love people the way you love yourself because you understand how God loves you and these things build on each other. Love people. Listen to, to me, church. When it comes down to we're going to unpack some more things over the next few weeks in regards to loving your neighbor, and we're going to get very practical about this, but, but we just set, set the tone of our conversation. We need to love people where they are, not where we want them to be. We need to love people where they are, not where we want to be. And, and how we communicate that love, by the way, is important. We had a neighbor down in Rancho Santa Margarita who, um, they had a dog who just barked all day. And it wasn't a, it wasn't a yippee dog. It was like a, a, bo- it was like a, oh, 
oh, oh, oh, all day. In fact, we have a, a friend down, down in RSM who, um, who, she's like the hugest dog lover you've ever come across in your life. And if I ever said anything against an animal, she'd be like, oh my gosh, I can't, right? And freaking out. She was at our house and she's like, oh my gosh, could the dog please just stop barking? She was getting, I was like, see? So one day we're in the backyard and I heard the neighbors, we had just recently moved in and I heard the neighbor in the backyard and I thought, you know, I'm just going to talk to him. Hey, and I look over the fence. Hey, how's it going? Yeah, good. Good to meet you, blah, blah, blah. I was like, hey, you know, your dog just, your dog really barks a lot when you guys aren't here. This guy, no joke, he, he kind of was, had his back to me and he like wheeled around and he starts yelling and cussing at me like, well, your kids are throwing, blah, 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 blah. and at first I was shocked. And then this, yeah, rose up in me, and I'm, now I'm yelling at him, and my kids are there, my, and everyone's like, and there's just this exchange going across the fence, and it culminated with me yelling at him at the top of my lungs, going, I'm just trying to be nice, <laughs> to which my kids said, we're going to get a picture of your face yelling and putting on a t-shirt and put under it, I'm just trying to be nice. <laughs> How we communicate our love is important. <laughs> and sometimes we come across that way because we're telling people, hey, I'm just going to tell you the truth in, in love, of course, but I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm just trying to be nice. And then we beat someone up. They're on the side of the road already bloodied, stripped, vulnerable, and then we just get our little kick in as well. And God goes, that's not my love. When it comes to loving your neighbor, would you just love your neighbor? Would you tend to their wounds? Would you not try and fix them or call out their issues or point out the things that they probably already know about themselves? Love people where they are, not where you want them or think they should be. Sound good? Let's stand together. A couple of our core values as a church, one of them is love does, the other is live in community. Next week, we're going to talk about proximity versus community and the difference between those two. But would you purpose in your heart and would you ask the Lord to show you this week how you can love your neighbor? Stacy made a great point. You need to ask God to show you that this has come about for her because well, because she was pushed that way, she had to make a decision, and I love what Deborah had said to her, well, what are you going to do this week? What steps are you going to take this week? I would challenge you this morning, what are you going to do this week? Do you know your neighbor's name? Let's start with the people immediately around you. Have you met your neighbor? Maybe there's a person that you see at a coffee shop or through in your routine, maybe at the grocery store, you see them every week, and maybe you even do the, the polite Southern California, like, like you do a little nod, right? Yeah. Right, and then you just keep walking. Would you risk this week and go over and say, hey, I see you all the time. What's your name? Just, just, just meet them. Just say hi. I know, this is like so far out of some of your comfort zone. 
Jesus knows your name. Would, would you risk and just meet someone and find out what their name is? And ask God, Lord, what is it you want me to do this week to love my neighbor? Father God, I thank you that you know our name. I thank you that you've reached out to us, that you love us and you care about us. That you loved us before we even loved you. And God, I ask this morning for forgiveness for the places where I've given myself and where we've given ourselves permission to not love. Lord, where the attitude of our heart has been like the expert, wanting to justify ourselves and saying, what's the least I have to do? God, would we be a people who are marked with this? God, I want to give more. I want to love more. I want to reach more. Give us some practical ways this, Lord, this week, Lord. Would you open doors? Would you highlight people? I pray, Lord, that even as we go around our week, Lord, that, that there'd be some glowing people, that we would see people highlighted. Your spirit would say, reach out to that person, say hi to that person. Lord, we not, might not face anyone lying in a ditch, beat up, but we know, Lord, that every day we encounter people who are beat up emotionally and spiritually and relationally. God, would you use us this week to tend to those wounds, to go out of our way to invest in the life of someone else so that your name would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.